We are about our God. We must be about our God. And the message today points our hearts to Him. So let's read, if you would, 1 Peter chapter 2. We'll begin in verse 4, and we'll go all the way down to verse 10. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 4. These are the words of our God. As you come to Him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious. And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, The stone that the builders rejected has become a cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is God's word. May we be careful on how we hear it this morning. There's something terrifying in the critical moments of warfare. Where guns are firing and the battle rages all around you. I've been told this. I've never personally been there. But it is very unsettling. I read some comments made by soldiers of war as they were asked, what one mindset keeps you in control of your senses in the middle of the chaos of battle? And some of the comments were this. There is no single mindset of any given soldier. However, there is a basic mindset of a good soldier. Staying calm under fire requires a mental approach. Be organized, be serious, and be committed to the mission and the men around you. Your squad or platoon leader really knows his job. Trust him. Take your job seriously. Remember that you serve the Constitution of the United States, not the politicians. During combat, stress level is sky high. You are in a situation very few people experience. People are trying to kill you. This is where your training kicks in and drilled-in thinking takes over. In combat... Things are happening at an unbelievably fast pace and there is no time to be scared. Knowing your commander and knowing your mission becomes critical in keeping a cool head. These are wise words. These are words of experience. But these men are simply saying when there's chaos and when there is critical mission that's going around all around you, but that chaos and fear is, is, is squelching reality. The one thing that settles the mind and anchors the soul is truth. Truth about who is in charge and truth about what you are supposed to do. Peter, in our text here this morning, is giving us a series of of propositional statements of truth. And he is speaking because of his experience. He is speaking into hearts of people whose lives are shattered and scattered because of their work of the gospel. It has set people all over that known area. And they're getting persecuted. Some are losing their lives. It's in the middle of chaos. 
And so Peter understood what it meant to wage war on the current culture and the corruption and to simply believe into Jesus. In our text, he sets out to make sure that each of us today steady our souls, literally anchors our souls and our lives to the truth of the gospel. Because he understood this, knowing our identity in Christ helps us understand our corporate function with each other in the church. This is the prominent idea of this particular text. And like these soldiers in battle, when suffering pain, when suffering trials, and trials beat down on the people of God, understanding our commander and believing in his mission becomes the foundation and the source of good church health. In a time like our world is facing now, we need to gravitate towards these very important truths. So let's listen well. Two points today. The first point is our identity in Jesus. Our identity in Jesus. Who is our commander? Peter's very careful in verses 4 through 8 to help us understand our identity in the church by helping us better to know our Savior. So quickly after Peter urges the people urges us to have a real hunger for God's Word. If you remember verses 1 through 3 last week. To be hungry, hungering for God's Word. Both the written Word and the living Word, which is Jesus and His Gospel. So he begins this section with verse 4. Look at it. He says, as you come to Him. And this phrase is the idea of us coming to our commander coming to our King, coming to our Savior as we come to Him. And it's worded in such a way that it means to draw near to Him, but not just one time, but in a continual fashion. We continue to draw near and we continue to come to Christ. But it also is with the intention of remaining there. I'm not going anywhere else. I'm coming to Christ and I'm not going anywhere else. And so we come to Christ... And we come to Him with the purpose of staying with Him and walking our lives together with Him in a very intimate and a very uh, dependent way. This is not, He's not dealing here with the past coming to Christ, but how we come to Christ and even how we now come to Christ. It's a daily thing. You see, we came to Christ for life. And we've been given life through Jesus Christ. But now we are coming to live in Christ. And the way he gives it to us here is we begin to understand that the him in this text, as we come to him, is Christ. If you remember with me in chapter 2, verse 3, Peter quotes, look, look at that verse, he quotes, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. He quotes Psalm 34, 8. And he asked us to taste and see that the Lord is good. And I would ask you this morning, do, do you understand that God is good? Have you tasted this? But I also want you to understand that the psalmist, when he says taste and see that the Lord is good. He is speaking of Jehovah. He's speaking of Yahweh. But Peter here is talking about Jesus. It's one of those many times in Scripture, the passing allusions to the deity of Christ, that Jesus is Jehovah. So when Peter talks about Jesus, he wants us to understand he's thinking about Yahweh. He's talking about Jehovah, Jesus, the Lord Jesus. Have you tasted that the Lord is good? He's talking here about conversion. He's talking about genuine salvation that sees the Lord as good because of what Jesus has done for us. And you have found Jesus satisfying. He's talking about true salvation. You say, how do you know that? Well, because Psalm 34 verse 8 goes on to say, blessed is the man who has taken refuge in him. You found 
your salvation in this Jesus, in Yahweh himself. This is not theory with Peter. It was, it's, it was very experiential with Peter. Because Peter denied Christ. He understood what it meant to not believe into Christ and not hear his word. And his own life had been transformed. And now he wants to explain to his readers and to us how this works in real life. Because you know what? We live in real life. You see, Peter understands that in the throes of living life here in this fallen world, with trials, with corruption, with persecution and weakness, we are prone to identity amnesia. We forget who we are. You can get so caught up in life that you forget that you are actually in Christ. And so in forgetting who we are in Christ, we seek the identity replacement of life. You say, what are you talking about? Well, if you don't live life vertically correct in my relationship with God, then it bleeds over into our horizontal lives. We're prone to find our identity somewhere else. We're prone to find our identity in our jobs. We find our identity in marriages or our children or or our education or our status or our finances or in people liking us, our popularity. But we seek it anywhere else we can think that we can find security, that we can find a sense of belonging and satisfaction. And what he says here is this, we are in Christ. And so it is Jesus who gets to define our identity. It is Jesus who gets to define who we are. And here is where we find our identity. Peter begins to explain then who Jesus is to help us rest our wandering hearts, our covetous hearts, our idolatrous hearts, and we can rest our hearts in Christ alone. So notice, he gives us three pictures of who Jesus is through the use of using the stone metaphor. And what I want you to see, first of all, that he says in verse 4 that Christ is the living stone. As you come to him, as you come to Christ, a living stone. Now what we should be able to see already is that Peter is fascinated that Christ is the author of life. That he's the one who begat all things. And it's because of Christ that he says in chapter 1 verse 3 that we have a living hope. We have an assurance in Christ that is alive. It's not dead. It's alive. It's because He sits at the right hand of the Father today. He is our hope. He is our assurance. In verses one, verse, or chapter 1, verse 23, Christ is the living Word. All that we can ever know about God, we can see it in Christ's perfect life lived here on earth. He's the living Word. And now, He says He's a living stone. And we know this is a metaphor because stones really aren't alive, right? So, so we have to figure out what he means by this. You see, now, <clears throat> where does he get this idea of him being a stone? Like, just, Peter, are you just kind of making this up? Well, if you remember, Jesus said something very peculiar to Peter in Caesarea Philippi. Um, it, was, it was fun to actually stand there and wonder how that whole thing went down. But we were told in the words by Jesus in Matthew 16, 18, upon this stone, or this rock, I will build my church. And he was talking to Peter. And I think Peter from then on may have had a fascination with stones, with buildings and architecture, perhaps for the rest of his life. I can imagine him wandering through Israel and seeing these boulders or, or these stones and these rocks And every time his mind would perhaps wander back to those precious moments when Christ told him those words. And he's trying to figure out what in the world does that mean? What does that mean for me? What does that mean for the church? But these are metaphors and they're not given to us to be imagined. They're given to us to be interpreted. 
What was Jesus saying? So Peter then begins to draw from a depth of knowledge of scriptures. He told us in verses 1 through 3 to get our noses into the word of God. So now he's telling us why we do this. We do this so that we can learn Christ. Why? Because all of scripture points to Jesus. Over and over and over, they point to Jesus. So the idea of Christ being a stone was not new to Peter. He's not making this up. He's not just grabbing it out of thin air. In Genesis 49, verse 24, don't turn there, but look at it later. Moses writes to us that the God of Jacob was called the shepherd, the stone of Israel. And people would understand what he was meaning by that metaphor of stone. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 35, Daniel tells of a small stone, he's prophesying here, that a small stone would one day roll down the hill and smash the idols of this earth, and the glory of that stone would fill the earth. Well, who's that stone? Who is that stone? Well, now Peter says that stone is Jesus. And he's the living stone. And he's the living stone because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We, cert- we learned about this already in chapter 1. The living hope was through the resurrection. And now the living stone is also through the resurrection. It's a beautiful picture. But notice two things that I want you to see about this particular stone that he mentions here. Jesus as the living stone. Notice first of all that he says... That this stone, this is man's estimation of this stone. What is man's estimation of this stone? Will you see this in verse 4? As you come to him, a living stone, man rejects him. Now stay with me as we walk through this. Because what he's saying is he's building a point. And he's headed somewhere with this. So walk with me through this. All right, The stone is rejected. Man looks at him and goes, "Uh uh-uh. I'm not believing this. It has been the nature of humanity from the point clear back in Genesis 3 where Adam and Eve partook of the fruit that man has from then on rejected the person of Jesus and his redemptive work. It's part of what sin is. And it goes to the heart of sin that we, in our own sinfulness, we desire to be God. So Christ... When he came to this earth, he came into his own. But scripture says in John chapter 1 that his own received him not, rejected. And the word rejected here indicates that men applied their test to the stone. We're going to see if this is the true stone or not. They applied their test to the stone, but because it failed to measure up to their expectations and demands... They cast God aside as useless. He wasn't the Messiah. He wasn't the God that he said he was. And they put him to death, and it was almost as if his death, they thought, well, that proved that. They had no idea what they were talking about, did they? And this is what we do today, isn't it? Isn't it true we don't really believe God is good. We don't really believe that God is God, even in our own hearts today. We reject Him. We get to be the ones that decide how God is and how God isn't. And so He gives us a warning here. This is a warning. Peter's saying, hey, understand something, that men reject Him as the living stone that He is. But notice, secondly, God's estimation of the stone. You see this in verse 4. Do you see this? But in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Those are beautiful words. Christ was indeed God's chosen one. He was the Messiah, the sent one, selected by God to be mankind's redeemer. And as the one selected for God's building purposes, the stone was choice. It was an excellent choice in God's sight. And let me just tell you something. If God is doing the choosing here, you can bet you he knows what he's doing. He's going to choose the absolute best. And he does. 
So because of Christ's proven character and work, the Father also esteems Him as precious. That word precious literally means honored, prized, highly valued. So this stone is solid and it is unmovable. Why? Because He is God the Son. And in the Father's eyes, His Son is precious. Can you remember with me two particular times in Christ's life where God makes that point loud and clear? Do you remember? Christ at His baptism. God comes and descends like a dove and He says, this is my beloved Son. This is my precious Son. Hear Him at the transfiguration. This is my Son. My beloved Son. And both times He says, hear Him. That was not a new message. That was the same message that God told Israel. Hear, O Israel. Listen. In other words, don't make your own estimation of Him be your standard. God isn't the God of our making. But He also is saying this, don't reject Him. Don't set Him aside. And if you set one part of Him aside, you are rejecting Him. If you say God is, hmm, then I want to go, wait, is that what God says He is? Or is that what you're saying God says He is? So the first thing that He shows us here is that He's the living stone. Now hang with me. Notice next, verses 5 through 6, the first part of verse 6. Christ is the foundation stone. Do you see this in verse 5? He's the foundation stone. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Peter switches metaphors a bit, even though he keeps this idea of a stone. But instead of a living stone now, he's a foundational stone, or a cornerstone, as we will see. He is setting in our minds that Christ, as a stone, becomes now our foundation stone, because we are like living stones, not saying we are living stones, but we are like living stones that are now being built up to a spiritual house. The idea here is that God is at work in us, building us up. We are now being built. And he's talking about a temple, and it's one that's not made of bricks. It's a temple made of people. But here's his point. Something that we all as people need to understand. Jesus is the cornerstone. Peter's readers here would know exactly the kind of right-angled stone that's put in the corner that's placed there intentionally. It's the first stone that would be laid that all the other foundational stones are aligned to, connected to, and then everything else is built on top of that foundation. That's what foundations are. This building, thank God, has a foundation. We're sitting on that foundation, right? This building isn't going to go anywhere. We'd have to take a huge bomb to destroy this place. The foundation is massive underneath here. Praise God for that. But the point that he's making here is that Jesus is this foundation. Jesus is the integrating point of the church's life. He is its beginning. He is its author. He is its reference point. He is its measuring point. And He is the standard. Without Him, there is no church. He is in this strategic position that interlocks the whole structure that gives cohesion, stability, and unity to this entire building. Jesus is this cornerstone. And this is why Paul says that no one can lay a foundation other than that which has been laid, which is Jesus Christ, 1 Corinthians 3, 11 and 12. You see, my friend, the church is his temple. The church people is his temple, his dwelling place. So Christ here is this foundation stone. There's an individual sense in which we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. 
Paul says this in 1 Corinthians. You don't, don't you know you're, not, you're bought with a price, you're not your own, therefore glorify God, that he is taking up residence, and in that way we are individually temples of God. But the point of view here is not the individual. The point of view here is the view of a community. He is speaking to all Christians scattered. That we together, with every other genuine believer on the face of the earth, are the living temple as a community of believers. We're the spiritual house that he is talking about here, that he's addressing here. People from all time who have been brought to Christ through repentance and faith that believed into his righteousness, all are dwellers of God and we become the people of God. But together, we're genuine believers. Together, we're the spiritual house. Peter is addressing here, though, a real danger in the Western church culture. It's the danger of individualism. We turn Christianity into some kind of individual, private pursuit. It becomes a Jesus and me religion. That's not the religion of the New Testament. We're called to a collective faith. A faith that's all about living in relationship to others. So Paul uses terms like body, temple, and family to remind us that our walk with God is in fact a collective walk. A community walk. You see, my friend, you as an individual, you are not hardwired by grace to do your own thing. Each of us are designed by God and His grace to be part of the people of God. This is why I tell our people in our foundations class, okay, you got to go out and you can't just sit down by yourself. You can't be to yourself. You've got to come and serve others. Why? Because of this theology. Each of us are designed to be a part of the people of God. And your spiritual health and your usefulness are directly connected to not just understand this, but in living it out. Each of us are designed to be the part of this people of God. And so whether you recognize it or not, you are intimately, by grace, by divine purpose, connected to everyone else in this room. And then we collectively are connected to every other person believer in this country, in this world. We're part of the place where God dwells. Peter calls this here, this beautiful picture, we're a priesthood. A priesthood. All believers constant, or constitute a collective priesthood. A group of folks who are God's representative. He's not saying one person mediates between individual believers and God. That's not what he's saying. But what he is saying that through Christ's work, each believer has a direct access to God himself, which then begins to explain our love and care horizontally for others. I like how one writer puts it. Every believer is a priest for himself before God. And every believer is also a priest for every other believer before God. We represent God, and we live for God, but we also live for each other. Love God, love people. And this is the kind of work that God calls each of us to, to invest ourselves in each other towards mutual Christ-likeness. So that you would become more like Christ and less like yourself. So that I would become more like Christ and less like myself. So that all of us would find that the great unity that we have is Jesus. It's a beautiful picture. He's the foundation, but we are all connected by Him. We're connected through Him. And we're connected to each other for His glory. But then, Peter shifts gears one more time. And I want you to see this. Christ is The stumbling stone. Now hang on to your hats. It's going to get a little windy in here. But I want you to listen carefully. 
because I want you to see what he says. The, verse, the last second part of verse 6, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Christ is this stumbling stone. Peter now brings the force of the entirety of Scripture to what he has to say next. The cornerstone is Christ, and it's consistently explained in the Old Testament through verses like Isaiah 28, 16, or Psalm 118, 22, or Isaiah 8, 14. The whole view of these verses, Peter's point, and even Paul's point in Romans 9, 33, is for us to understand three things. In this text, understand three things. First of all, all of life is all about God. You knew I had to get this in. I'm actually not getting it in. It's there. Verse 6, for it stands in Scripture. What I'm about to say stands throughout Scripture. Life is God's doing. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. It's God's doing. I want you to understand that. Salvation, it's God's doing. If God had not sent Jesus Christ into the world, we would not have salvation. Christ dying for sin is God's doing. And he says this, I am laying in Zion. I am doing this. God is doing this. It's all God's doing. We are God's people, and that's God's doing. So understand that. He's the cornerstone. Everything in the world aligns to Him. And you better believe that. But notice secondly, with that, there's a blessing for those who believe. Pure and simple, what he says here. Look at the last part of verse 6. You'll see this. He says that whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Peter says, and those who believe in him will not be put to shame. Well, what's the point of this, Peter? That those who trust in Christ will never be disappointed. And so if you are looking at God and you're disappointed with God, it's because you're not believing in the God that he says he is. And in life, as these people were facing, you may be rejected by the world around you. You may even have a lot of questions that arise in your mind about God and what God is doing and why you're here. You may also find that many of your old ideas about life as you grow older get challenged by people around you. And you may find it sometimes hard to justify the positions that you take in this world because of what God says in His Word. And you may even find that you even have more questions than answers. That's fine. But what he says here, he wants you to understand. If you're trusting in Christ, you will not be disappointed. You won't be disappointed. And he's talking about the end result. And what we find here is Peter's own version of what we learned about in Malachi when we went through it is that own blessing and curse motif that's used throughout Scripture. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, God really makes this explicit in verses 2 through 7. God explains that if you hear my voice today and you obey it, you will receive blessing upon blessing upon a blessing. And if you look at verses 2 through 7 in that text in Deuteronomy 28, it's one blessing after another. You see, these are the blessings for those who believe. He makes it clear here. So look at verse 7 of our, of our text. Chapter 2, verse 7. So the honor then is for those who obey. The honor is for those who believe into God. The word honor here is the same word that is used in verse 6 as precious. The precious stone. The chosen one. 
So Jesus is the precious one, and those who believe are also precious. They're blessed. Understand that. You believe into Christ, you'll be blessed. But then I want you to see the third thing. And this is where I want you to listen carefully. There's disaster for those who will not believe. I I don't know what else that you're doing right now, but if you're not listening, I beg you to listen to this. There's disaster for those who will not believe unto God. Look at the last part of verse 7. Notice what he says here. He says, For those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become a cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Back in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verses 15 through 20, God explains what happens to those who will not hear his voice and will not obey. We reject him when we do not believe his word, and thus we do not obey his word. The people in Jesus' day rejected him as the Messiah. Many people today still reject him as the God that he is. And Peter says to those who reject him, Jesus becomes a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And what essentially it means here is that people who reject Christ literally have to trip over the cross. They fall flat on their face as they try to walk past the cross, as they won't listen and they won't believe into Jesus' work on our behalf. In fact, the real sense that Peter introduces here are two phrases that come from Isaiah 8, 14, where Isaiah says, a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. The two phrases continue the stone theme drawn from the Old Testament that Peter's now bringing here. And the term stone is explained by the use of the term rock or literally a rocky mass or cliff. In the first phrase, Christ is a stone that causes men to stumble. And this is the idea that if a person is going to die in eternal death in hell, he walks by the cross and he stumbles and falls and trips over it. And that's how he gets there. Because he won't believe in the cross. The stone has been set in place by God, and it's a specific place in the building, but since it is ignored, the passerby, unmindful of it, trips over it and injures himself. Forever. But the second phrase, a rock that makes them fall, or the rock of offense, presents a parallel but a somewhat different picture. The term rock is not a building stone here, but rather a large embedded boulder Sitting on a rocky cliff, it is a large rock that humanity cannot dispose of. And the idea here is that Christ, who is the unbeliever's judge, is that rock. It's now the stone who comes and rolls down and crushes the believer because of his unbelief. Yet Christ is at the same time the sacrifice that took sin's judgment on himself, that he's both the judge and the Savior. He's that rock. And what Peter is getting at is that men cannot evade Christ by their unbelief. When you don't believe in Jesus, when you shake your fist at Jesus, you cannot evade Christ. Simply because you won't believe in him. This is a powerful warning. And what Peter is getting at is that men cannot evade Christ, but Christ meets them in unexpectable and unavoidable ways. This is why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 that one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. You don't want to believe that God is the God that he says he is? Be careful that the one who saves you is also the one who judges and that rock will crush you till an eternal punishment in hell.
One writer says this, clearly Peter, as does the entire New Testament, does not consider an encounter with the gospel a casual affair. It is a matter of life or death. The fact that God has gone out of his way to reach your soul with the gospel should be a warning. But notice how in such stark words Peter makes it plain of man's responsibility. Will you see this with me? Man is to believe, but they stumble and they trip over Christ. And he says this at the end of verse 7. They stumble because they disobey the word. Do you see that? They stumble because they will not believe. But man's responsibility doesn't nullify God's sovereignty. Peter says this, as they were destined to do. Now listen carefully. Just as believers were destined to salvation, we learned about that in verse 1 and 2 of chapter 1, unbelievers were destined for damnation. Now hang with me. Be careful of the conclusions you draw there. Here's what this means. While God sovereignly gives the gift of faith to the believer that they might come to salvation, God does not sovereignly give the gift of sin to lead the unbeliever to eternal judgment. Sinners are responsible for their own sin. That's what he's saying. Sin exists. And when they give themselves to their own sin, the penalty for it is certain and eternal death because they have chosen sin. They will to be sinners. They pursue sin. Listen carefully. We do not believe in what we would call equal ultimacy for God had to intervene in the case of the believer to save us. What God does in this case of the lost here, those who will be damned, he simply does not intervene and he leaves them to their own choice. But the point is, if God had not intervened in our lives, we would not be saved. We would still be chasing after our own sinfulness. But God in His mercy and in His grace come and transforms us, grants us grace. So the responsibility of every person is to turn and repent. That's what we're called to do. You say, what do you do to a person? Well, well, I would tell them, trust Christ. Because ultimately, no one deserves salvation. This does not in any way make God guilty of evil. God is not responsible for the unbelief that is in their heart. God is not darkness. God is light. And you say, Eric, can you reconcile it beyond that? No, I can't. Peter is simply letting these folks understand that God's purposes will be fulfilled. And that's wonderful news for those who believe. But those who will not believe, that's horrible news. Christ says, come. If you're wondering if you are one of those ones who won't believe, I say to you, come to Jesus. We all come to Christ eternally lost without His kind grace intervening. So, understand our identity in Jesus. It's about Him and His salvation. And then secondly, and this will go quickly, I promise, understand our corporate function in Jesus. And we see this in verses 9 and 10. Does he see what he does here? He goes, but, switches gears, but, you... Who's he talking to? Who's you? You believers. You're a chosen race. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people of his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of called him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Oh, this is beautiful. All right? But we're going to go through this quickly. We are redeemed for God's purpose. All of life is all about God. We must then understand our function in this place with each other. Understand, first of all, two things. One, people function and we live in wonder of God. When we come week after week, we come in wonder of God. 
You see these words, but you. And it means you have tasted God is good and are believing unto him. The people of God live in wonder of Christ. And he goes, how? Well, notice, first of all, you're a chosen race. Our identity in Christ makes us a collection of people. And I think that Peter uses the term race here because of one of the most fundamental forms of identifying the humanity is racial identity. And he's saying this is how thorough this new identity is. It's as if you've been given a new race. He's not talking about the color of your skin. He's talking about what has happened in your heart. You have been made new. We're a new bunch of people. A new bunch. Secondly, we're a royal priesthood. Now the idea of royal here means that we're the priest to the king. Priest to the king. This means that we've been given access to the very presence of God. We should never grow used to that. For thousands of years, the people of of God were not able to enter the presence of God through the Holy of Holies without a high priest. All that has now changed in Christ. It also means that we sacrifice. We give, and we give as a sacrifice. Christ was the ultimate sacrifice, and now we live in sacrifice, in service to each other. Living and caring for each other takes work, and it takes sacrifice, and it's very inconvenient. But we do it. Why? Because Christ inconvenienced himself on our behalf. Thirdly, we're a holy nation. That means we've been separated out by God and his own special people. Peter is arguing that his identity is now deeper to us than race or language or ethnicity or culture or social class. We are no longer divided by these normal human divisions that separate people, that separate people because we've been given a new collective identity that levels the playing fields that makes all of us the same. The, the, the ground is level at the cross and we stay there and we live as a holy nation. If I am in Christ and you are in Christ, we are one. And we live this out. And finally, a people of God's own possession. And this is stunning that God has willingly reached out and taken you as his own and drew you close to his heart. He has wrapped his arms of grace around you and he says this over and over and over, you are mine, you are mine, you are mine, you belong to him. And let all of us take a deep breath at that because none of us deserve that. That's the point. And then he gives us a purpose statement. Do you see this? done this that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. It means this, folks. We don't preach the glory of CBC. We don't proclaim programs or ideas. We don't, we're not called to point out again and again to the glory of a person. We are called to be people who point to our Savior, our Redeemer. We offer the world not a system of redemption. We offer the world a Redeemer. We tell people around us the story anytime of how this Redeemer called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We talk about him and now in his sovereign plan, he gives us our very life. That our life becomes a story of His unshakable grace and mercy and all because of His power and divine grace that is set upon us. And we stand and marvel at this. Why would He choose the likes of me? And that brings us to the second point, the final point. We are people who live in humility. You say, why? Well, two reasons. Look at verse 10. Once, you're not a people. You're not a people. You're nobody. Until you come into the God's family. We're not a people. But also, we become people who've been given mercy. His mercy becomes our new operating system. God's mercy becomes how we look at God and how we look at others. We don't deserve God's grace. We don't deserve God's mercy. People are in the middle of their own struggle like we are, so we treat them with that same great mercy. And we can endure so much difficulties 
with relational differences in life if we understand we are the people of God and because Christ has served us, we get to now serve each other collectively. And so when we're fired upon, when trials come, when pain comes, we can take it. Why? Because Christ, the stone, is our commander. And the church, the people, are our family. And both of this buoy us up to the top where we can catch our breath and keep swimming and keep fighting the battle that God has called us to. All of this is because we are the chosen people of God. Boy, take a bath in that. Sit in those waters and rejoice in God's loving kindness to people who desperately do not deserve it, but have been poured all over his infinite grace and love. Will you pray with me this morning? Father, run these very difficult words to our hearts, and may we breathe your grace. May our hearts rejoice with each other that you have called us into a priesthood of believers. We are people who, because of your finished work on our behalf, we are people who can serve one another, even through great difficulties, even through great misunderstandings, even through great trials, even through great persecutions and great pain of soul. We stop looking inward. And we find that wonderful gift of your mercy and your grace. And we rest in that alone. Father, I don't know the people, all the stories of the people here this morning. But Father, I do know that you have called these people to hear the words of the gospel and respond in faith and believing. To that person that may be sitting here today, lost in the throes of not understanding who you are, may you, by your kind grace, go past that hardened heart of stone and would you grant that person faith. And may that person hear the words of God. And may they understand that if they will trust Jesus, they will never be disappointed. And even when disappointment seems to loom large, God Would you hold their feet still? Would you anchor their soul for the finished work of Christ, knowing that we don't go by feelings? We get to go by propositional truths that you have told us. He holds us fast. And may our hearts hear this morning your kind words. And Lord, may we also hear the warning. Don't. Let go of us, great Father. If you let go of us, we're done. We don't have the ability to hold you fast. So we trust in your ever-present grace and your mercies that are new every morning. And we relish the thought that you have loved us in this fashion. So great Father, great Son, great Holy Spirit, guide us, take us by the hand and lead us And cause our hearts to rejoice only in you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.